In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. The world is a bizarre place, and sometimes there are stories so strange and so unusual, and they stick with you for a long time. Following unsolved cases will most likely do just that to you. Here are the most creepy mysteries ever that have not been solved. Number five. Feet of the Northwest. Nike, New Balance, and Ozark Trail. All these shoe brands have one thing in common. They've all washed ashore in the northwestern United States with a severed human foot inside. Since 2007, the Pacific Northwest seaboard has been haunted, and they've found 21 shoes with feet inside of them, and they have no clue where they're coming from or who they belong to. Almost all the severed feet are on the right foot, and many of them are wearing sneakers or hiking boots. In 2016, a family was visiting Vancouver Island and was taking a walk along the beach when the husband found a shoe and picked it up. It took a minute, and they were trying to figure out what was inside it. That's when they realized what it was. They turned it over to the authorities, and sure enough, it was a human foot. And that's how many of these stories go. For years, police have been baffled by this unusual occurrence, and many conspiracy theorists have put out their own theories. They range everywhere, from organized crime killings, a serial killer, and human traffickers, all the way to remnants from a tsunami or a plane crash. 
The first foot discovered was in August of 2007 on Jedediah Island near Vancouver. And this one was actually identified, but family has chosen to withhold the victim's name. And then shortly after, another man's right foot was found on Gabriola Island. The identity of this victim remains unknown. The following year, two more feet were found on Valdez and Westham. This time, they belonged to the same man. Later on, another two feet, one from a female foot and the other male, they were found washed ashore in the same manner in Richmond, British Columbia. The thought of a serial killer remains a possible explanation for many of those who hear of the case. However, there are also those who believe there's nothing suspicious about finding washed-up shoes with a foot inside. They explain that the feet found were likely disarticulated and not severed. Sea scavenger creatures eat what's left of a body, and then what's left behind is the shoe. Why the bodies ended up in the ocean, though, in the first place is anyone's guess, as it could be a number of reasons. Once a body spends time in the water as well, they're subjected to the push and pull of the currents, and often the first parts to come off are the hands and feet. And as for the unusual rate of them showing up in trainers or sneakers, scientists explain that more modern sneakers are now made with air pockets, giving them buoyancy and causing them to float. This takes the foot along with them, and eventually they wash up ashore somewhere. So this is actually nothing new. If sneakers in the past had air pockets, then we'd see a lot more feet showing up. Police say they don't suspect foul play in most of the incidents, but they're not completely ruling that out either. Number 4. Dick Hansen After going through a tough divorce, Dick Hansen, former college football star, was ready to move on and in good spirits. He called his female friend Jean on April 29th of 1991 to hang out with them at their favorite bar. After they left the watering hole, they got into Jean's car and drove to where Hanson had parked his pickup truck. Once there, they sat in Hanson's car and kept talking for a bit. It was then that Jean noticed another car had pulled over behind them. She didn't think anything of it since there was a mailbox on the sidewalk. After they finished talking, Hanson told Jean to follow his car since she was unfamiliar with the way home. Anson pulled out and Jean followed, but so did the man in the third vehicle. She grew uncomfortable at seeing the third car trailing behind them, tried to see if they were indeed following them. She maneuvered her car to the middle lane, and the guy behind her did the same. For more than ten miles, the vehicle tailed them, and finally, Hanson pulled over to the side of the road. Jean did as well, and to their surprise, the vehicle behind them also pulled over. Hanson then got out of his truck and approached the trailing car to talk. Hanson and the man spoke, but Jean couldn't hear what they were saying, but she did see the man gesture towards her car. At the same time, Hanson stepped back from the vehicle, raised his arms, and told Jean to get out of there. She got out of the car and, as she did, heard several pops before the third vehicle sped away. She ran towards her friend, who had been shot twice once in the neck and the other in the chest. He later died at the hospital from those injuries. Police had a shooting on their hands, but they couldn't find a possible motive. 
One theory they came up with, though, is that the killer was a crazed sports fan. They speculate he said something to Hanson regarding Gene's 49er Hugs license plate. Is it possible the two actually had come across an insane rival fan, or was there something more to this story? Today the case remains unsolved, but an emerging belief is that it was none other than the infamous Zodiac Killer. As far-fetched as that may sound, he would have likely still been alive in 1991. Gene described the man as being white with a dark complexion and wearing glasses with large black frames. It's believed he was driving a 1970 Pontiac GTO Le Mans with a light gray or faded blue paint job. The composite sketch created has a resemblance to the sketches of the Zodiac, as provided by the witness. But as of today, no one knows who killed Dick Hansen. Number 3. Baby Nicole Lee Hattimer It's gruesome enough to hear of an adult murder, but when it's a helpless baby, it's far more disturbing. Baby Nicole Lee Hattimer would have been 34 years old had she been alive today, but her life was tragically cut short on December 26th of 1989, shortly after celebrating Christmas. The 10-month-old child was reported missing from her crib in her grandparents' home in Chippewa County, Wisconsin, despite the grandparents, her teen mom, and the mother's younger sister and brother being present inside the home at the time. The first responders came and helped search for the child, but shortly after midnight, they made a gruesome discovery. A firefighter who was helping out with the search found Nicole in the backyard. She was lying face down in the snow just 22 yards away from the home, and it was evident that someone had placed her there. During the autopsy, it was discovered she died from exposure and asphyxiation caused by a chest injury. They believe the little baby was thrown and landed on her chest in the hard, compact snow, causing the chest to collapse. What's more, it's believed she was still alive for some time after she was thrown because she was found clutching a single blade of grass in her hands. Everyone at the house was treated as a suspect at some point during the investigation, but no one was charged due to a lack of evidence. The death of baby Nicole sent shockwaves in the small community of just 900 people. Throughout the years, there's been a number of John Doe hearings, but none of them have yielded any suspects. Even more baffling is that according to investigators, the family never once inquired about the case since it happened. There were no calls for inquiry or update. Today, the case remains a mystery and investigators believe the only way can be solved as if someone confesses, and they would expect it to be from one of her relatives that was in the home that night. Number 2. Jonathan Luna Jonathan Luna, a 38-year-old U.S. attorney's assistant, was found dead on December 4, 2003 in a small creek in Pennsylvania. He had died from drowning, but also suffered multiple shallow stab wounds to his chest and neck, from his own Swiss Army penknife. On the night of his death, Luna was handling a case involving two men running a drug ring that were using a music studio as a front. He was working out a plea deal with the defense attorneys and promised to fax over notes later in the night 
and it's believed that after he got home, he later went on back to his office to work on the plea deal some more. By 11.38 p.m., Jonathan's car left the Baltimore courthouse and got on the I-95 highway. He used his easy pass on three toll counters before he switched over to buying tickets in the cash lane. After an hour and ten minutes of driving, his ATM registered a withdrawal for $200 near Delaware before he used the toll gate to enter the state. By 3.20 a.m., his ATM registered a gas purchase, and by 4.04 a.m., his car made an exit at the Reading-Lancaster interchange. His toll ticket for this was found with blood, which meant he was already injured by this time. It was determined his car was initially parked at the back of a drilling company before it was eventually driven into the creek. The first employee of the drilling company got in at 5 a.m., but it wasn't until 5.30 a.m. when he noticed the car. By this time, another employee had arrived and they went to investigate. As they approached the car, they found blood smeared on the window and called the police. When they arrived, they found Luna's body face down in the water under the partially submerged front portion of his car. A pool of blood was discovered in the back seat, which suggests he had been bleeding back there. This also makes it possible that it wasn't him driving at all. The left side of the vehicle, along with the driver's door, had blood smears on them, and the $200 he took out from the ATM was found strewn across the vehicle. The FBI was soon brought in to the investigation, and they couldn't find anything substantial. They theorized that because of Luna's superficial or shallow knife wounds, that it's possible he had done those to himself. Over the coroner would go against this, proclaiming the death as a homicide and that his wounds clearly showed defense marks. So then, what happened to Jonathan Luna? Was he really alone in that vehicle, or was there someone else who managed to get away with murder? Soon, the stories about his manner of death dredged up issues in his own personal life. Rumors say a certain Jonathan Luna had a profile on an internet dating site and he also had a credit card that he kept hidden from his wife. He was also supposedly deeply in debt, and there was the story of the missing $36,000 of evidence money in a case that he handled. All employees present were asked to take a polygraph, and Luna's schedule was coming up. A year after his death, the FBI released a statement that they think Jonathan was alone in the vehicle when he left that courthouse, and until his body was found. Many believed, though, that this wasn't the case and that, instead, someone else had been there. The fact that Jonathan left without his cell phone and glasses, which he needed to drive in the first place, they say, strongly points to this. What's more, the FBI was very quick to dismiss that it had nothing to do with his professional career as a prosecutor, even though he was dealing with drug dealers and other dangerous criminals. Until now, no one knows who killed Jonathan Luda. A $100,000 reward is available to anyone that can point to information about the case. Considering he's not the only prosecutor who's disappeared or died mysteriously in handling a drug charge, there could be something a lot more left to this story. Number 1. Blair Adams the story of Blair Adams is considered one of the most bizarre cases of paranoia and death that even today people don't know what to make of. In 
Blair, by all accounts, seemed like a normal 31-year-old Canadian construction foreman. Despite a history of drug and alcohol possession, Blair had been clean and sober for a year and was doing great. His friends and family described him as cheerful, but all that changed in the summer of 1996. Because Blair started behaving erratically, and he would suffer wild mood swings and look stressed out. When his mother asked him several times what was wrong, he replied, I don't think I should tell you about it. Soon enough, Blair's unusual behavior reached a tipping point. On July 5th, he took out all of his savings from the bank. This consisted of $6,000 in cash and thousands more in gold, platinum, and jewelry. Afterwards, he headed for the U.S. border and attempted to enter, but he was denied, and so he had to turn back. The next day, he went to work to inform his boss he was quitting and asked for his final check. That afternoon, he bought a round-trip plane ticket to Germany, where he had relatives. His flight wouldn't leave until the next day, but he was again set in a panic. He went to a friend's house and told her someone was trying to kill him and that he needed to leave, but she didn't know how to help him. The following day, instead of taking that flight, he returned the tickets, rented a vehicle, and tried to get across the U.S. border one more time. And this time, he made it. Once in the U.S., he drove to Seattle and bought an expensive one-way ticket to Washington, D.C. As soon as he arrived in the state, he rented a car and drove 500 miles to Knoxville, Tennessee. He was then seen at 5 p.m. in Knoxville when he stopped at a gas station. From there, things got even more odd when he asked for help from the attendant because he couldn't get his car to start. The attendant immediately figured out that Blair was using the wrong car keys. The two then looked everywhere for the correct car keys but couldn't find them. So instead, Blair called a towing company for help. He left his rental with the towing company and they dropped him off at a local hotel. While there, he was seen pacing in and out of the lobby five times before he finally paid for his room. He gave $100 to the attendant pocketed the room key and left without collecting the change or heading up to his room. He marched out the front door at approximately 7.37 p.m. And then 12 hours later, his body was found about a half a mile from the hotel in a construction parking lot. He was naked from the waist down as if someone had forcibly removed his pants, shoes, and underwear. His shirt was also ripped and his socks were turned inside out. It appeared as if someone was looking for something. The money he had was scattered all around him, which included $4,000 in American, Canadian, and German currency. Another $2,000 worth of jewelry and gold was left untouched. The autopsy showed he was killed with a single violent blow to the stomach, which ruptured his insides. Police also noticed he had suffered various cuts, indicating that he had fought with his attacker. In the end, though, no one knows what happened to Blair Adams. Some people speculate he suffered from a mental illness and became paranoid that someone was going to get him. But then, for him to actually meet his death, just as he had feared, is far too coincidental and suspicious. If it was some strange act, it's almost impossible to self-inflict a blow to the stomach so hard that it kills you. 
strange case of Blair Adams and his death remain unsolved to this day. So they were the most creepy mysteries ever that have not been solved. I'm Andrew. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please do check out our exclusive content down in the link below. We have bonus episodes every Thursday, plus a whole library you get access to. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you guys in the next one.